Well, we're a family here today, 99.9% of us. You know, as I thought about this morning, I thought, you know, we have a couple of hundred people here, and uh, uh, there's, you know, a hundred maybe plus more than that in, in other parts of the building, too, and uh, uh, the average church runs about 80 in attendance. That's uh, about 50% of churches run about 80, and and only about 80% of churches run more than a couple of hundred. So, you know, it's not a bad Sunday for most churches. Now, it's not a good Sunday for us in attendance, but uh, on a day like this, I'd say that's pretty good. So we're to be congratulated. You guys are, are tough people, and I'm glad we're together today. So this is sort of a family day, and that's kind of how I've taken it, and I kind of put aside what I had originally planned and started working on something on Friday and not knowing whether or not we'd have service or not, but I worked on it anyway, and... Uh, you know, Patty's been home too for the last couple of days, and uh, uh, I get down to my study, man, and I start digging into stuff and start reading, and I hardly ever come up for air, do I? She had to finally go down there and said, you coming up? I said, uh, in a little bit. So I came up for air and came up for food and went back down and just had a great time, and I must admit, this is one of the studies that has, that has, uh, I, I'm not f- you know, last Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago, I talked about a, a subject that I wasn't quite, you know, really had not gnawed on for quite some time, you know, for, for really enough times. I, I, could, I could spend probably weeks on the subject that we're going to be talking about today. And, and just for the record today, are you ready? Because you are here today, this is, this is for you. I have one point. One point. No subpoints. I have one point, but no, we're not going to be here three minutes because I have five scriptures, but they're not points. They are all scriptures that are, that are building not an argument, but they are building a case for my one point. And I touched on it briefly last week. Before I do, I found this funny little tidbit Here it is. Each Sunday morning, as they began class, the fifth graders would line up and recite their one section of the creed in the order that it was written. That teaching method worked well and went on about four months until finally one Sunday morning they began class, as they had many, many times before, exactly the same way, citing the creed. They began the class. The first girl got up and, as usual, recited her line flawlessly. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. She sat down. The second was a boy. He stood up and said his sentence, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and sat down. Then there was an awkward moment of silence that precipitated for a longer awkward moment of silence, no one saying anything in the class. Then the silence was finally broken by one little girl who felt that she needed to uncover the reason for the problem, so she stood up and she loudly said, I'm sorry, sir, but the boy who believes in the Holy Spirit is absent today. Now, some of you don't understand what that means, but there is a creed, and the Apostles' Creed, the third, is a a symbolic declaration about the Spirit of God. But the point that I want to make here today is simply this. I wonder if the Holy Spirit is absent today. 
Now, I don't think he's absent because of his choosing. I think he is absent primarily because of our choosing. He is absent in most of our lives and absent from most of our churches primarily because of our decision and our neglect of the person of the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is absent in our churches, we then revert to methods and things to make up the lack of the presence, the power, and the person of the Holy Spirit. So we, 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 we in a church today, we, we, we have a tendency to, to fabricate things so that we can be attractive or attractional or relational rather than relying upon that which is the necessary person that does that for us is in the person of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I was over here a while ago and I was just kind of thinking about all the thoughts that are kind of welling up in my mind about what I've studied in the last two days. We can build without God a tower of Babel and be successful in building a building like the Tower of Babel without the absence of the blessing of God or the power of God. It is possible today to build a church with people with the absence of the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can muster up the desire and the discipline and the determination to do certain things independently and apart from God. And God, for whatever reason, allows us to, to, to engage activity without him. And, and we have a tendency to pat ourselves on the back for, look what we have done, and we then ask God to bless it, and it's important that we understand that as a church, we are never going to see the church that he wants to build, as we have been describing for the last two Sundays, in the absence of the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can build a building like this without him, but it will never be filled without him unless we revert to the world's measures and methods. And then we have an empty church, which Mike and I were talking to earlier this week, is the first church at Ephesus that while they were doing many, 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 many great things, have lost their first love. It's also equally true that as an individual, I, I, I have a tendency to think that, that, that because I have resources in and of myself independently and apart from God that I can then muster up the desire, the discipline, and the determination to make certain realities happen in my spiritual journey and my progress in becoming like Christ. And so, so in my pride, if I'm not careful, I can somehow revert to my own energy and my own resource and my own strength and my own determination to try to accomplish and achieve the very things that God is calling me to do. And the end result is either emptiness or frustration. And I think that's one of the main reasons why there are so many frustrated Christians today is because somehow they have been convinced if you just have enough love for Jesus or if you can muster up enough desire or enough determination or enough, enough discipline or enough or whatever it is, if you could just get, you can make it happen. And the reality is that independently apart from the person of Christ, you can't make your salvation happen. Independently apart from the person of the Spirit of God, you cannot go in your own power to accomplish and achieve what only can be accomplished and achieved in the presence 
the power through the person of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, there are many frustrated people today. For I think most of us in here probably count at least 10 names of people that we know, that we have seen walk the aisle, who have declared their intent to follow Jesus and have walked out the doors of the church after declaring their faith and being baptized, only to be defeated in their journey. And they have thrown in the towel and walked away because they are incompetent. They, are, they lack Whatever is necessary to achieve and accomplish true life transformation. And in their exhaustion and their desperation, they can't overcome whatever addictions or whatever characteristics or whatever things that, is, that, that, that lacks in their lives. And, and they just say, I can't do it. And what some of us in here have done is we have masqueraded that inability and we pretend and we put on masks and play games and pretend as if we've got it all together. But in reality, we don't. And I think it's a very small percentage of people who, in reality, are actually moving in the progression of, of becoming like Christ in the person, the power, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in the way that I think God intended for us to, to operate. And, and the reality is in most churches, especially Baptist churches, in my lifetime, we have allowed the charismatic movement to rob us of the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. He scares us because we're not in control. We're not sure what he's going to do, where he's going to lead. And so we, we stifle it and we neglect it and we deny it and we fail to tap into it because that's the real reason why he was sent by Jesus himself as he declared in the apostles and to John 14, 15, and 16, which we will, after, um, after February 5th, we're going to dive into those passages where Jesus is preparing his disciples and he's preparing them for his exit. And in that preparation for his exit, he's going to give them a powerful resource that's going to supplement his physical presence. And that is the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit that will reside in them. And so, hence the reason why the, the, I wrestle with this, this, this study, and, and especially with the title of the message today, Not On My Own. Because I want us to walk away with this idea and with this, this practice of going out into the world that we live in and, and dealing with that world, but also dealing with the internal struggles of the flesh and sin and our own carnality and our own humanity, that he did not leave us alone to deal with that. And maybe the reason why you may be frustrated, disappointed, and even defeated today is because you're walking in the power of yourself, not in the power of the Spirit. For he alone then is the person and the presence and the power that liberates us through the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit that begins at conversion, that continues to then transform us into the likeness of Christ. And who of us have not been frustrated with the lack of spiritual progress? So let's take a look at that. And I want to sort of begin by looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I alluded to it last week, and I want to come back to it, and we're going to, again, next week, we're going to come back to another passage in verses 1 to 11 that we sort of gave a, a, a flyover last week, 
when he says that he's going to give us power and that power is going to enable and empower us to be able to fulfill the mission that he's called the church to fulfill. But today in Acts chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, notice he's speaking to his disciples. He has, he has, he has, he, Jesus has died and he has risen from the dead and he's spending 40 days now with his disciples helping them not only cope with, with, with his loss and now his resurrection, but what's going to happen when he leaves because he knows he's leaving. And he says to us, notice in Acts 1, 1 and 2, uh, Gail read it earlier in the first book, O Theophilus. I'm not going to take the time to, to talk about him. We did last week. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Notice he references that Jesus did a lot of things and taught a lot of things. And he already dealt with that. Dr. Luke has already dealt with that in his previous gospel account and in the gospel of Luke. He has exhaustively given all that the Holy Spirit has given him to give to them. And he's talked already about all that Jesus began. Notice he began his ministry and he is continuing that ministry now. Dr. Luke is in the continuation of the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in his second gospel account the, the, the acts of the Holy Spirit, which is really what acts should be called. And notice verse 2, and the day when he was taken up, until the day he was taken up, after, notice the word after, he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit. He continued until the day after, till the day after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He selectively chose the 12 disciples, now 11, whom he is instructing. He's giving them commands. These commands are not optional. They are to be obeyed. But how did he give these commands? Now keep in mind, this is Jesus, our Savior, fully God and fully man. Fully God. Jesus, fully God, notice, gave commands how? Through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit. He himself had every right to do it independently and apart from the Spirit, but he chose to do it through the Spirit, meaning that the Spirit was the agent of preposition that expresses that it was the Spirit who was the agent that was working through Jesus. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, was operating through the Son of God as he was giving commands to the disciples that he had chosen. I have read this text for 39 years, and I've missed this. Have you? I missed it. I just jumped right over that. And that jumped out at me last week as we were doing the flyover in Acts 1, 1 through 11. God the Son chose to tap into God the Spirit as God the Spirit worked through God the Son through those 40 days that he was walking on the planet with his disciples. He was coming and going. We talked about that last week. And he would come. He would instruct them. He would command them. He would give them instructions that they were to carry out. And he was not doing it independently by himself, but he was doing it through the person, through the Godhead, through the third part, person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Have I made my point clear? There's my argument. Now let's go to the second passage, Acts 10.37. Acts 10.37. 
and 38. It's an interesting passage. It begins in Acts 10. We got a guy named Cornelius uh, who it, it, he goes to length to talk about his character, and we're going to talk about that because I don't have time. And what an incredible man he was, and and he was praying, and he would give, and he would serve, and and all of a sudden, an angel appears to him and tells Cornelius that Simon Peter is in Joppa, and that he needs to summon for Simon Peter because Simon Peter has an important message for him. He sends his guys down. He sends his three dudes down there. And while his three dudes are on the journey, Simon Peter is in, on the roof of Simon the Tanner. Okay, He, he is the guy that, that, that is discipling Simon Peter, and so he's there. And, and, and while he's up there, he gets hungry. Ever been hungry? And while he's hungry, he has a, a catharsis. He has a, a, a vision. And God opens his eyes and he sees all these animals, you know, these unclean animals that they're not in his diet. You know what I'm talking about? You have a diet that you don't sometimes. My son has a diet. He doesn't really eat any meat. He, he eats something they, they call meat, but it's not really meat. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that stuff right now. We were at their house last time. We're going to the house in February to see our, our ninth grandchild that was born. And, and his name is Theo, Theodore Ernest Boswell. They call him Theo. He was born uh, Friday. And they eat, uh, what's the name of that stuff, babe? Tofu. Tofu. And she puts it in front of me and she said, that's chicken. It looks like chicken but it ain't chicken, okay? So some of you know that kind of diet. So, you know, Simon Peter is, is a devout Jew, and he has a diet, and certain things he can and can't eat because he's following, you know, the Old Testament traditions, and God gives him a vision and shows him all these animals, and these animals he's not supposed to eat, and God said, eat! And he learned about bacon, Mike. Praise God. And so God said, Eat. And he and God have an argument. He, I can't do that. Three times. He said, no, God, I can't eat that. And God said, eat. He said, no, no, no. Yeah. So anyway, but in the process of that, God speaks to Simon Peter and said, hey, three guys are coming. And you're supposed to go with them to Cornelius and, and, and tell them about the, the gospel message. I don't know at what time that necessarily happened, but the three guys come and they invite him to come and he goes, long story short. And while he's there, he proclaims the gospel. He preaches the message, the story about Jesus. And while he's telling the story about Jesus to these Gentiles, these, these heathens, it's a cliff note here. It's just a, a part, a snippet of his message that's recorded. And it's interesting to me that of the message that he preached, because I'm sure Simon Peter didn't preach a, a, a three or four verse message. Okay? A 50-minute message, like me. <laughs> and, and, and what the Spirit recorded of that message we have for us in Acts 10, 37, 38. And I think there's a reason for that because it brings incredible clarity to the, to the case that I'm building, the point that I want to make. Notice that you know what has happened throughout Judea. He's talking to Cornelius and his people there. Beginning in Galilee... Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, notice this, after the baptism of John preached. After the baptism that John preached. Notice what's next. How God 
Notice this, anointed Jesus, God, God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, with the Holy Spirit, with God the Spirit. God the Father is anointing God the Son, Jesus from Nazareth, with God the Spirit. Now, the reason why many of the scholars say that he mentions Jesus of Nazareth is because he is pointing or is highlighting the emphasis on that while Jesus was fully God in totality, he was also fully man. And he is referencing the humanity of Jesus. I don't really care about all that. All I'm interested in for my argument's sake and presenting my, my, my case, God the Father anoints God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. That's pretty incredible. Notice the progression. Not only with the Holy Spirit, but anoints him with power. His power comes through the person, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The power that Jesus used in his earthly ministry as he begins his ministry is not his own power, but is a power that comes from the Father through the Spirit, through the Son. That's huge. Have you ever heard anything like that before? I know I have never heard anything. Of course, I didn't go to a charismatic school, I guess, and hadn't sat too many charismatic services. But there's some validity here. And how he went around doing good and healing all that who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He, he manifested the presence of God. Why? Because he did things in the power, not his own, but of the Spirit. Next passage, Luke 3, 21. We had references, we referenced the baptism, the water baptism of Jesus. And we're, we're going to go there in, in the next couple of Sundays. We're going to talk about the baptism of Jesus, talk about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. But I want to talk about the water baptism of Jesus in, in Luke 3.21. Now, the beginning of Jesus' ministry is recorded, the beginning, this beginning, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't record this. And it's the the water baptism by John the Baptist when he baptized Jesus in the water. And this is the beginning. This is the initial thing in which Jesus chose to begin his ministry. Before he went out to engage and, and to fulfill the purpose for which God sent him, for which he agreed to come, he first went to John the Baptist and to be baptized by John the Baptist. It's the beginning of his ministry. For Almost three decades. There's no mention of Jesus. He got one time when he went to the temple with his parents and he was forgotten there. And, and, and when they finally went back to the temple to look for him, what was he doing? He was arguing and, and, and sharing insight with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were there. And they were lambasted at this little bitty fellow and his insight into Scripture. They were blown away. And he and his parents kind of have a little tango there. And he goes, and until then you hear nothing from him for 30 years, three decades plus Nothing about Jesus. And all of a sudden, boom, he comes on the scene. And this is it. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. In Luke 3, 21, this is how Luke records it. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, notice, notice Luke said he had been baptized and he was praying. He was baptized and then he, he and John were praying. They were having a little prayer meeting right there in the middle of the river, he and John. Wouldn't you like to have known what they were praying about? John, the 
the precursor of Jesus, the one that was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. Out baptizing, calling people to acknowledge and admit their sinfulness before a holy God and to repent of that sin and, and so that righteousness can reign and rule in their lives. That's John, preparing the way for Jesus. Now Jesus is there and he's been baptized and they're standing there side by side and they're praying. Notice the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Notice what, notice what he said, in bodily form. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into that, but in bodily form. And to help us understand, like a dove. In bodily form. And a voice came from heaven. Notice what the voice says. You are my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Did you see the Trinity there? God the Son, after his baptism, is blessed by God the Father with God the Spirit. Matthew 3, turn your Bibles there. Matthew 3, verse 13. That's all I want to present here in, in, in regard to my case. Now keep in mind that John's baptism is not a baptism that Jesus needs. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for sin. They acknowledged their sin and they came into the water to be baptized by John to cleanse them from their sin and so that righteousness might reign and rule in their lives. Jesus did not need to be baptized by John. Why? Because he was not a sinner. He was fully God. He was God incarnate. He was God in the flesh. Though he was fully man, he was fully God. And because he was fully God, he would be able then to take upon our sins on the cross and die for sins that he didn't commit, but sins that we committed, but that humanity allowed him to die. So he is fully God. He was not a sinner. He didn't need to come to John and say, I admit I'm a sinner. Wash me of my sins so that righteousness might rule. He was perfectly God in every sense of the way that he was pre-birth during his life and after, he was the same. He, he was not a sinner. So to keep that in mind, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus is coming at the leadership of God. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Hey, I'm, I'm the one that you, sh you should baptize me. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the anointed promised Messiah. I mean, you're the one that God is sending. You're the one that I'm preparing the way for. You should baptize me. You're, you're above me and I'm beneath you. You should baptize me. But Jesus says, notice, he humbles himself and submits not only to John's baptism, but to God. He says, let it be so now that thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Christ baptized? Not because he was a sinner, but out of obedience to the Father, modeling for us what was necessary for us who are going to follow him. And then he consented, John did, and when Jesus was baptized, notice what happened, immediately he went up from the water and behold, pay attention, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove bodily form, descending like a dove. But notice Matthew adds this, and coming to rest on him. It not only came down upon him, but it rested on him. Coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father, recognizing God the Son, now God the Spirit resting on his son. Mark 1, 9 through 11. 
I told you we're going to go through these pretty quickly. And when he came up out of the water, I'm going to skip through just down to verse, and when he came out out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and noticed the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God the Son was obedient to God the Father, and God the Father empowered him with God the Spirit. It talked about earlier in Acts 10 that he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, why would Jesus at this moment need to be anointed with the Spirit? The anointing is symbolic of many things in the Old Testament. It's symbolic of, of anointing articles of worship so that they are, they are dedicated, consecrated for the service of God, and they are holy, consecrated things. People were anointed for special service. But, but the anointing, if, if you do a careful study, means the presence and the power of God. Jesus was anointed with the, with the presence and the power of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's, there's a lot of different theories about how that happens. I'm of the belief that because Jesus, when he was in heaven, remember, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You got the three up here. Inseparable. While we often describe God the Father with characteristics and God the Son with characteristics and God the Spirit with characteristics, you really shouldn't distinguish the three separately, independently of each other because they're one. They, they may have different roles, but they're one, and, and they share in everything in heaven. And when Jesus, God the Son, agreed to come down to earth to be born of a virgin, we saw last December that the person that conceived Christ in the womb of Mary, who was a virgin who claimed to have never known a man and who asked fairly, how can this be since I've never known a man? The angel said that the Holy Spirit of God will overshadow you and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Notice, come upon you like, like it did in Jesus' back. We'll call him upon you and will overshadow you. And that which is conceived in you will be of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's responsibility in the conception of Jesus and his birth was to overshadow Mary. And he placed Jesus in Mary's womb. God the Father fulfilling his purpose through the activity of God the Spirit, by taking God the Son and placing him in Mary's womb. So I'm of the opinion, much like John the Baptist, who is de described as someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb, right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. I'm of the opinion, now I'm still, I, I hope we're all growing theologically, okay? I am right now of the opinion in hours in my basement doing research. I am of the opinion that Jesus was never separated from God the Spirit. They are three in one. He says, Jesus said many times, you've seen the Father, you've seen me, right? Did he say that? So even in the flesh, fully God and fully man, 
He was never really separated from the Father. You've seen the Father. You've seen me. So he's, he's connected to the Father. So I don't think he's ever been disconnected from God the Holy Spirit. The baptism that is happening here and when the Holy Spirit is coming down upon him isn't he's, he's receiving the Holy Spirit like we do because that's not what I think he's describing here because he's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, inseparable. He's fully God meaning that he's fully part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the inseparable, but he's also different than, than he's ever been before. He's also fully man. And the divine is becoming the creation. The divine is becoming what he created. And so what I want to help, I hope I've been clear, for my final passage, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter, don't get nervous, I'm not getting charismatic or Pentecostal, although, never mind, I'm not going to go there, I'm going to filter for once. Philippians 2.5, I want you to notice this passage. Before we read this passage, I want us to make this very clear. Jesus, completely divine, didn't need anything to be added to him, ever. How could a young man, a boy, be at the temple and expound scripture to these people who have spent their lifetime studying the scripture and hear things they'd never heard before? unless the Spirit of God was operating through Jesus when he was a boy. That, that's my, that's my, my foundation for this. <laughs> and so his deity needed nothing to be added, but humanly, fully God, but fully man, in his humanity, he needed something. This is complex. This is why I didn't do this on a... Seeker Sunday, okay? Don't take that too far. You, you can be in danger if you take that too far. Because you rob him of his deity. He's fully God and he's fully man. Look what happens in verse 5. Notice what he writes. The Holy Spirit. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Christ had this in his mind. Is this the way God work through Christ. This is the way Christ, the Son of God, this is, in other words, he modeled for us what he wanted us to do as his disciples. So he's setting, he's setting the, the pattern, the standard for us. Notice, who through, who though, I'm sorry, who though he was in the form of God. Jesus Christ was in the form of God. When he came down and was conceived in Mary's womb and was birthed like you and I are birthed and grew up, and, and this Jesus, who was fully God, was also fully man. But notice he was in the form of God. He was equal to God. In fully God, fully man, he was equal to God. Okay? And that word form is a word meaning inner nature. He had the same substance as God the Father had when he was on the earth, when he walked the planet, when he ministered and fulfilled the mission of redemption. He was completely, totally, 100% all of God. He was God the Father, God the Father. He was 
fully deity. He was fully God. But notice he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, when he was born and he walked the earth, he was equal with God. Which is one of the main reasons why the Sadducees and Pharisees wanted to crucify him. They came to him and said, you're making yourself equal to God. He said, yeah, I'm his son. Why? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one and the same. They have distinctions, but they're one and the same. He was equal because he was divine as God is divine. But notice, grasp. To help us understand what that means, this is what I've concluded. He, it's one thing to hold something and then you let it go. Meaning that he possessed all of the deity of God, but he didn't hold it so tightly when he came down to earth and was born of a virgin named Mary and was fully God. He became fully man. And when he became fully man, he let loose some of that. He didn't, in other words, he didn't rightfully claim what was his as fully divine so that he can become fully man. In other words, he didn't implement all of the stuff that he had prior to coming to earth. He didn't, he didn't hold it tightly. He released some of that. He was still fully God. He had every right, every right to claim every characteristic and every power and every ounce of total deity, but he released it when he became fully man. He released some of it. Notice it says, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That word there, he emptied himself. You know, in order for him to come down to planet Earth and be born of a virgin and be conceived like we're conceived and be fully man, he had to sort of empty part of himself. He was fully God, but he, 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 he didn't grab, he just, he kind of released some of it so he could be fully man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. He didn't stop being fully God, but he was also fully man. And because he was fully God and fully man, he chose then to be obedient to God the Father and to, as God the Son, to rely upon God the Spirit to empower him for ministry and for his mission of redemption. I don't know how well I presented my case and I could talk about others. If you go into Matthew 4, I believe it is, yeah, verse 4, verse 1. I mean, after all of this, he was anointed with the Spirit and with power. It's Matthew 4, 1. It said he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus was led by the Spirit. He didn't just go wherever he wanted to go. I mean, we know about that and experiencing God in John 5. Right, Brother Dave? He went about seeing what God was doing and he waited for God's invitation. He joined God in what God was doing. Well, who, who showed him? Who revealed him? Who led him to what God was doing? The Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. You can find scriptures in the New Testament where it declares that he was empowered by the Spirit. So my argument is simply this. If he 
needed being fully God and fully man to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, then who the heck do we think we are? We need to be like him and we need to humble ourselves in a, in, and strip ourselves of our pride and recognize that while we may be able to build a tower of Babel, we need the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're not tapping into him rightfully so. And the reason why I'm convinced there's so many frustrated, depressed, powerless, ineffective witnesses and warriors in the spiritual battle against the enemy is because we're doing it in and of ourselves independently and apart from the Spirit of God. And as a result of that, we are defeated in our faith. We masquerade that defeat. We pretend that it's not realistic. We mouth the words and we do the gestures (laughs) I think that's what's wrong with the church today. You know, Malachi talked about that God doesn't change. I had that conversation with somebody this week who claims to be a Christian and said, well, the standards of God then are not the standards of God today. We're talking about the standards of morality. We're not talking about the standards of tithing and giving. We're talking about the standards of morality and how we just need to be loving as Jesus was loving and accept people as they are, where they are, without any constraints. And I say hogwash to that. And the church is doing that. There's another church I just read just this week that has a a, a former Southern Baptist church has just called two pastors who are married, they are lesbians. They're Baptist. The first two lesbian pastors in a Baptist church. They were ordained by the oldest Southern Baptist church in Virginia as pastors. As lesbians. We're in trouble today. Because we are being acclimated by the world instead of standing in the grace and in the power of the Spirit. And we're trying to be too much like the world rather than relying upon the Spirit to relate to a world that is desperately in need of a Savior because they are living in sin and the only solution to that sin is Jesus an evangelist tells a story from the days when he was held held tent meetings many years ago one day after a series of meetings was over he was pulling up tent stakes a young man approached him and asked what he had to do to be saved the evangelist sort of snarled and said sorry it's too late Oh, no, was the response. You mean it's too late because the services are over? The evangelist said, no. I mean it's too late because it's already been done. Everything that could be done for you, for your salvation, has already been done. Why do we believe that in Christ there's nothing we have to do? It's already been done. I mean, we're Baptists. We would all agree with that, right? Anybody disagree with that? It's already been done. Jesus did everything he needed to do for our salvation. But Jesus also did everything that needed to be done for our service. He empowers, he infuses us with the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe one of the reasons why we are frustrated 
is because we're doing things in the, in the flesh and not in the spirit. I know of a pastor who once said, my preaching alone will fill this auditorium. Aren't we arrogant? And before we throw, th- throw stones on that, because it's, it's easy to do, let's look in the mirror and see how arrogant we are to somehow conclude that there's anything that we can do independently and apart from the person, the presence, and the power of the Spirit of God fully operating His through us. Because I'm just as proud as the next person. If I just preach good enough, people will come. Baloney. If we just had this ministry, people would come. Garbage. If we just built this huge facility, if we build it, they will come. Well, how'd that work for us? Didn't work too well, did it? And I wonder if we have built a tower of Babel without the person, the presence, and the power of the Spirit of God. That's my, that's my search in my own heart as pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Because we got a tower. We built a 3,000-seat auditorium in the heart of downtown Wichita. And I can't find anybody today who's here with me saying, well, I voted for it. <laughs> If we as a church are going to see God fill these seats, it takes our yieldingness to his spirit to be the vessels and the instruments that God wants to use to make that a reality. But it's not dependent on me or you alone. My lights don't turn on without a power source. Do they? Neither do yours. So to whom are we relying? And who is resting on us? So that his mission for this body called Emmanuel Baptist Church will see us through. Individually, privately? How's your independent walk going with God? You frustrated? Well, if I just loved him enough, if I just was disciplined enough, if I was just dedicated enough, if I try harder, I can try. What's wrong with that? I. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that Christ is this presence person in the power of God through his Holy Spirit who dwells within us who are genuinely his believers keep in mind he's a person he's not a force his presence is in us because we're born again through that spiritual birth that regenerational birth he places permanently his presence in our lives the person of the Holy Spirit and that person who is present needs to be tapped into as our power source because we cannot get it done for his glory and advance his kingdom 
without him. Sing it all my days I will see Lord your